Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and we've got a great interview for you today. We're going to be talking with Haley Sukiyama from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, one of my faves, as you know. And she knows a lot about a brand new law that just went into effect in California called the California Consumer Privacy Act. And while this law is technically only in California, California is a huge state and a trendsetter in uh, in the United States for these, well, for many types of laws. And so this law really will uh, will likely have effects for all of us here in the United States and it's a, it's a good thing. And so I, I, we talk a lot about this law and I asked, you know, Haley, I pepper her with lots of questions and lots of dig into a lot of the details of this law. And so I want to make clear before we start, this law is not perfect, uh, but we cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good. This is, this is a really good start. Uh, yes, uh, there are things that need to be tweaked. Yes, it could go further. Uh, but there are a lot of very interesting things in this and it's really the first you know, comprehensive privacy law that we really have in the United States. And we'll talk about some other states that have that have uh, passed some other laws that are maybe more focused or maybe a slightly different, um, cover a slightly different aspect of privacy. But we, we kind of laugh about this ourselves as we're going through it, because I ask her all these questions. And, you know, the, the, but I want to make it clear before we start, I, I'm, I'm not trying to show disdain for this law by these questions and trying to expose its weaknesses. Uh, it's just it's something we need to talk about. And it's very interesting. And you know, it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a baby steps. We got to, we got to, we got to, you know, crawl before we can walk kind of thing. So anyway, it's a really interesting discussion and it's uh, going to break it up into two parts. We're going to talk kind of initially about, you know, get into the details of the law and why, you know, why there are potentially loopholes, why maybe not, you know, go as far as we'd like and, you know, how to interpret some of these laws that, you know, sound really good. Uh, but you're really, you know, the, the, as I'll say, the devil's in the details. Quickly though, before we get into the interview, uh, I'll usually save the news for news shows, but you know, with this coronavirus outbreak, actually with any sort of, you know, natural disaster or big thing in the news, anything that, anything that scares people, there are going to be scams associated with those things. And there already have been some. And again, this is not my usual news show, but I want to, because this is so prevalent and the next news show may, you know, may not be for three weeks. Uh, I want to get this out here now. And let me just read very briefly from this article from ThreatPost, ThreatPost.com. It says, as the coronavirus blows up into a worldwide pandemic, threat actors continue to exploit the disease to spread malware. Just this week, cybersecurity professionals identified a bevy of new threats ranging from coronavirus-themed malware attacks, booby-trapped URLs, which are, you know, web links, on Tuesday, researchers reported two malware campaigns connected to the coronavirus, one that uses a phishing email to spread, and it's a, it's a special type of Remco's rat, it's a special kind of malware, and the other using a Microsoft Office document to drop a backdoor onto a victim's computer. Uh, it goes on, but my point is, um, be careful. Uh, whenever there's any kind of these big things in the news, especially if they're, if they're scary, they will be exploited. So be very careful and more, more diligent than usual as you get these emails. If they sound too scary to be true, they probably are. Uh, beware of something that forces you to log in or asks you to give your password or saying there's some problem with your account. You know, all the usual kind of things. But in the in the context of the coronavirus, you know, might maybe that's a thing that would get you to click on it because you're so worried about it. So, all right, just had to get that out of the way. I want to make sure you guys were forewarned. Uh, forewarned is forearmed. So let's get into our very interesting interview. The first part of our interview with Haley Sukiyama from the EFF. Haley's a legislative activist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where she works on the EFF's state legislation team. Thanks for uh, coming to the show. Thanks for having me. And the reason I 
uh, invited you on the show is uh, saw some articles recently from you guys about the CCPA or the um, uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, which is a law that was passed in California and went into effect sort of recently. I, I, I'm doing some research like it's, you know, it's kind of goes into effect January 1st, but then July 1st is something else. And I'm sure we'll get to that. But but it's really kind of a landmark uh, legislation for the United States. It's been really lacking in you know data protection and. Uh, it's only a state bill, but it has a lot of effects, and we're going to dive into that today and figure out what all those things are. Uh, so if you would, let's just start with the basics. Um, like, Tell us what is CCPA, and maybe give us a little history. Like, How did, how did that come into being? Sure. So CCPA is the California Consumer Privacy Act, as you said, um, and it grants Californians basically three basic rights when it comes to their relationship with the, you know, with companies that they do business with. So you have the right to know what information companies have about you. You have the right to ask to delete that information. And you have the right to tell companies not to sell your information. And there are many other things it does, but those are sort of the three basic things that, you know, in terms of consumer rights that mm-hmm. it offers. And then it's it's sort of an interesting story just from a legislative perspective. So California has um, a ballot initiative process, which, mm. of course, many states do. And this really started, you know, obviously people have been working for privacy in California for a long time and had some success. But this is an interesting idea because uh, it started as a ballot initiative sponsored by basically a, a real estate mogul hmm. who had like a conversation with someone about privacy and kind of got heated about it and <laughs> was like, well, um, you know, he had the money to put something on the ballot and collect all these signatures. And so um, the ballot initiative was actually a little bit stronger uh, in, in some hmm. ways than the, the law that passed. And, you know, it got it got the signatures, it was getting some attention. And the legislature was like, well, you know, we would like to see this go through the legislative process rather than a straight up ballot initiative Um, for a lot of reasons. You know, I think the ballot initiative process, it's a little bit harder to amend things that Mm. happen. So um, and, you know, it isn't quite as deliberative. So um, they basically made it into a law, um, introduced it as a bill. Uh, I believe it got like introduced and passed within a week. Oh, this wow. was before my time at EFF, but that is the sort of lore. That's my understanding of it. <laughs> and basically went through really, really quickly, um, which is part of the reason why you alluded to there's a little bit of interesting uh, timeline stuff. Mm. So um, it passed in 2018. It went into effect uh, in on January 1st, 2020, which left us a whole legislative session in 2019 to fight over it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, EFF and many, many of our partners, I should say, including ACLU and Consumer Reports, um, we fought a lot of bills that were really trying to weaken it and open up some loopholes in this law before it took effect. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And then also, as you alluded to, there is the laws in effect, you have the rights, they are yours, you can tell companies these things. But the Attorney General will not bring enforcement against uh, companies for breaking the law until July. And right now they're working through guidelines for companies to say, you know, the law itself is is a bit broad in some places. Mm-hmm. It says you, you have to grant these things, but it doesn't give specifics. So um, the Attorney General is in the process of nailing down some of those specifics. Kind of sounds like tax code, like the, the pass a tax law, and then invariably the, the IRS has to follow it up with like guidelines. You know, like let me let me explain what we really meant by that law, or you know, kind of qualify it. Yeah, that can be frustrating, but I also think in in a lot of ways, like you know, you don't necessarily want the government to say you have to do you have to use this protocol and you have to use this technology and mm-hmm. kind of freeze it in legislative time, and so there is a sort of argument to do it that way. Sure. All right. So the devil, as always, is in the details. So I want to dig into some of those details. So 
I mean, it sounds great, right? You know, the right to know what they have on you, to, to be able to delete, ask them to delete that, uh, and then to ask them not to sell it. But I'm so like, how do they define information? You know, what types of data does this cover? And are there any, you know, is there any types of data that are explicitly not covered by this? Yeah. Um, so as you say, devil's in the details. So there are a lot of, there is a lot of information that is not covered by CCPA. I think, um, in a, in a lot of ways there are, so I should say, you know, CCPA is a great law and we are happy it passed. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of ways that we would improve it, but advocacy aside, just information. Um, so it doesn't cover publicly available information, which is, Mm. um, it is a problem for some people, but there are some sort of like First Amendment considerations to make there, right? Because you want to be- have people, um, you know, mm-hmm. if it's publicly available, you want to be sure that people have, have uh, a right to it. Right. Um, so um, it doesn't cover publicly available information. It also exempts some information that is covered by other laws. So, um, you know, who already sort of have their own regimes like of HIPAA. how to protect the patient, like HIPAA like uh, financial kind mm-hmm. of credit report kind of information, which we can get to later. There are some problems with that, I mm-hmm. think. And so there's that. And then it also, I should say, doesn't cover every business. So CCPA particularly doesn't apply to, to smaller companies or companies that like aren't uh, primarily making money off of your personal information. So uh, to be covered by CCPA, you have to make um, more than $25 million per year in revenue collect information on uh, 50,000 or more consumers each year or make 50% or more of your annual revenue from data. So, and those are all or conditions, right? Any one of those will qualify you. Correct. Okay. So you mentioned public information and this is something I've been waiting to talk to a lawyer about for a long time. And I don't know, I don't know if, I don't know what you're going to think about this, but maybe if if you guys have talked about this around the office and that whole thing with public information is, Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the police arguing with the GPS tracker. It's like, well, we could also just follow the guy, you know, so GPS tracker just makes it easy. It's the same thing. We're allowed to follow him. Why aren't, you know, why aren't we allowed to put a GPS tracker? But the, you know, Supreme Court shut that down. And I think rightly so, because it's, it, it's, while it's functionally equivalent, it, it's so much easier. I mean, and for manpower wise, right? I mean, so it's like in the old days when you wanted to find out public information on somebody, you actually had to physically go to that person's county courthouse, probably, uh, to find their divorce records or their marriage certificate or you know, their property records. And and now that that is online, it's kind of like Clearview too, right? The, what they did with face uh, photos, they're all out there. But now that they're online, it's possible now for somebody remote to go and scrape all of those and make those a- available in a single place. Is it, So while I understand the, you know, the kind of the First Amendment public information thing, there's definitely a, it seems like a qualitative difference between the way it used to be and the way it is now um, that needs to somehow be taken into account. Yeah, I mean, man. So I, I will, I will say, uh, I'm not a lawyer, so <laughs> um, I want to make that very clear. I mean, you hit upon something really interesting that I think. Um, so I'll say up front, like I don't have an answer for you on that. Like I wish I had an answer, but but like covered all that stuff. I think um, it's certainly a concern that we have. I think um, to give you a little bit of my own background, I used to be a journalist, and so to me, it makes it makes a certain amount of sense that you. I mean, I certainly hear what you're saying, that it's much easier to, to access. And I think that's something that has to be talked about more when we talk about these laws. But, you know, I I can think of many instances where as a reporter, you know, I needed access to or, I, you know, I wanted access to public information. Mm-hmm. And so and it's very hard to draw those lines 
um, mm. particularly bright ones in law. But I don't want to dismiss what you're saying at all. I just don't have an answer. <laughs> yeah, and I don't either. But I mean, I wonder if we could do things like, you know, like rate limited, like, you know, you can have access to anything that's public, but you can only do so much at a time or I don't know. I just I wish it seems to me there's a definite need for something to address that that aspect of it because it, it is different. It's not the same. And it's, you know, when computers could process, you know, millions of these things and make them available to anybody on the planet, that's, that's, I, you know, certainly from a journalistic perspective, I mean, myself, when I research something, it's great that I can go find these things, mm -hmm. but you know, that it's got this downside too. So, um, yeah. Okay. I so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the next thing is, and, and the details, what does it mean when they say sell your info? And I, because, and the reason I, you know, you think that would be clear, but Facebook is basically already saying, you know what, we don't have to worry about this law. We already, we, we don't sell anybody's data anyway. That's because they make it available some other way in which they profit, but they're not technically selling it. Right. Right. So, um, yes, you are correct that. So in the law, there are many verbs in the definition of sell. <laughs> you know, they tried to go beyond sell. And actually, when um, we were looking at ways to make this law stronger, one law that we or one bill that we proposed um, that did not get through the legislature would have made it sell or share, um, mm. which I think is a little clearer. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say, you know, the definition of sell in CCPA is like, selling, renting, disclosing, disseminating, being available, <laughs> you know, it, it uses a lot of verbs. And then uh, it also says, you know, for monetary or other valuable consideration. You know, again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a compliance lawyer. So uh, you are right that Facebook and uh, Google are not making do not sell buttons available. Um, I think that demonstrates, you know, without getting into, uh, you know, over my skis on a legal analysis <laughs> of whether that's right or not, I think it does point to the fact that, you know, there are ways that we could make this law stronger and clearer to cover sort of the, the some of the most common interactions that people have, or, you know, when you're thinking about like data sale, whether it is technically a sale or not, mm. right, that um, those are the companies you think of. And so I think the fact that they can make that, you know, they have very smart lawyers who have decided to make this, uh, this interpretation. Um, I think that points to a way that CCPA could be stronger. And the other aspect, the other thing that a lot of these companies that collect data, the other loophole, the other, the other kind of way they try to skirt some of these things is, oh, but we anonymize that data. So it's, it's not personal information anymore. It's all anonymized or de-identify the you know, various ways they talk about it. How, sure. how does the law address that or does it? I mean, is it, does it specify to what degree something needs to be anonymized or de-identified before it can not be, not fall under this data law? Um, so uh, it does, I mean, there is, you know, de-identified is identified, is uh, defined in the law. So, you know, it says cannot be reasonably, I like, again, many verbs, but cannot be really reasonably kind of linked to a particular consumer. I think, you know, as you indicate, re-identification of data is actually mm -hmm. something that is much easier to do than many people realize. And so there are, you know, in, in terms of other ways that we would like to see CCPA and other kind of privacy laws improve, we would like to see sort of more, um, I guess, specifics around like what that actually looks like. Yeah. I mean, just to give the audience an example, what uh, location data, there's a couple of researchers that have sure. said things like if I, if I know just, you know, two or three um, points of data about locations for somebody that even if I don't have a name associated with that, it's very easy to identify them because chances are there, one of them's their home and mm -hmm. one of them's their work. And how many right. people will, will go between those two exact points 
on a given day, right? And yeah. you know, so yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I live at the, so I, we work at, I, our office is in San Francisco. I work obviously in San Francisco. My home is at the end of a transit line and, mm. you know, I go pretty much at the same time every mm-hmm. day between these two things. And it's like exactly like how many people like me are there. So certainly, you know, when we talk about aggregate data or, you know, de-identified data, like there is a, a threshold that, I mean, it's context dependent. So I don't want to be like, it's always 5,000 right. people or whatever. But, um, you know, that there are, you just have to think about your use cases. So, yeah. So my next question, I think I know the answer, sadly, but do these regulations have any sort of uh, applicability to law enforcement or government agencies? Um, <laughs> judging by the, by the preamble to your question, you do know the answer. <laughs> yeah. So this applies to, to private businesses. I think, um, you know, there are certainly laws at the state level and at the federal level level that do deal with sort of law enforcement access or state government access to, um, or government access in general to, uh, personal information. And certainly, you know, we did, um, one of the fights that we fought over CCPA in the legislature and sort of that year session between when it was passed and when it went into effect is we really tried to make it clear that, you know, there are obviously a lot of private companies that collect information that then share that information with cities. And so, there was a bill that basically would have made that incredibly easy. Um, mm. And so we fought against that, right? Because we we certainly, you know, you, you kind of have to consider government agencies and private companies differently in the law, I think. But you certainly don't want to facilitate that sort of passing of information. So. Right. And one of the you know one of the use cases that made me ask the question was, and uh, somebody recently told me that my own local Wake County DMV is doing this, and a lot of them are, is they are monetizing the databases of humans that they have. I mean, so the you know like passport agencies and, D- and BMVs, DMVs, they have your address, they have your picture, they have your 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 height. You know, they've, they've actually got a lot of Im- uh, information about you, and a lot of these guys are selling the stuff out the back door to pad their you know, pad their finances. Yes, definitely a very disturbing thing. And I think, you know, we are trying to think about ways to, you know, essentially keep governments from themselves becoming data brokers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, uh, what do they say? You can't boil the whole ocean. Oh, sure. all at once. oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Just like your disclaimer at the beginning, this is a great law. I'm not trying to knock it down. I'm just trying to, you know, dig into it and make sure we understand the, the ramifications and where and how far it does go and doesn't go. So, yeah. Well, and I think that's totally important because I think it's easy for people to be like, oh, this passed, like mm-hmm. everything's fixed. And that is definitely not the case. So the next question, another place a lot of these things get hung up on is how how are these uh, things actually enforced and, and what sort of consequences will there be if a company is deemed to fail to comply? Yeah. So um, under California Consumer Privacy Act, all of enforcement has to go through the state attorney's gen- attorney general's office, which is another thing that we you know wanted to see changed. I think, you know, at, here at EFF, we have basically three main principles that we want to see in all privacy laws. And one of those principles is what's called a private right of action so that every person should be able to sue Mm -hmm. for violations of their privacy under the law. Mm -hmm. CCPA does have a limited private right of action. So in some cases uh, around data breach, um, you know, if Mm -hmm. a company has like just completely ignored its responsibilities to protect your information and it's breached, you can file a lawsuit against them. All other enforcement has to go through the attorney general. So you have to, you know, make a complaint to the attorney general. They have to decide how they're going to take that case. We, again, talking about bills that we advance that 
would have improved this law that didn't make it through the legislature. Um, we wanted to add a full private right of action, and we also wanted to um, give the attorney general a little bit more access to resources and kind of, anyway, improve enforcement in a lot of ways. As I said, that did not pass. That is still something we would like to see the legislature do, um, just because when the, and the attorney general actually supported our bill and they said, you know, we would really only be able to bring a handful of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that is definitely a bottleneck that we are concerned about. But I will say, you know, there are, you asked about like what happens, what, what if, if that happened, right? If the mm-hmm. attorney general had a complaint and brought it and, you know, they, a business is found in violation of, law, then they have to pay a penalty for uh, $2,500 for each violation or $7,500 for each intentional violation. Mm. Um, so there is there is some money there. Um, you know, there is, I mean, that's not insignificant, you know, especially if you're bringing an action on behalf of a lot of people, right? right? Uh, which you would imagine the attorney general having few resources would go sort of after um, high profile or high impact uh, cases, not to speak for the attorney general's office, but that sure. is what we see normally. And so, you know, that is not nothing, um, but we definitely would like to see enforcement improved. Well, yeah. And it's good that there's some sort of scalability in that because like, yeah, like the GDPR in Europe is uh, a lot of their stuff is based on percentage of annual revenue, which means, you know, and I, I, I seem to recall Germany doing this for speeding tickets as well. So you're like, you know, if the speeding ticket was 50 bucks and you're rich, you don't care. You're going to speed, you'll take a ticket, you'll pay and you'll, you know, whatever. Same thing with Facebook and or Google. They've got so much money that, the, the you know, if you have an absolute value for the fines, you know, for them, it's usually a drop in the bucket. But, you know, mm-hmm. so I think that it sounds like these laws are finally kind of, you know, catching up with that and, and making these things scale to the size of the company so that it really does hurt, you know, when these companies uh, fail to comply. Yeah. And strong enforcement is like very, I mean, strong enforcement is, as you say, like so necessary to make sure that companies actually change their behavior or like fear strong laws. Like you could have the strongest law in in principle, but if you don't have teeth, if you don't have enforcement, then, you know, it's a little bit. Right. And so, and you touched upon another thing that, that I was kind of getting at too, and that is the AG's office has limited resources. So uh, that, that's another way that a lot of these laws fall flat is, you know, they pass this law that really sounds great, but then they don't basically fund it. Like the, the agency, you know, that is put in charge of enforcing those laws is completely underfunded. They can't find all the people to do it. Or if they, even if they do, they, if someone brings it to them, they don't have the resources to pursue it. And so that's another place where this thing, you know, could have a problem and that, that you guys right, rightfully identified and unfortunately didn't get a chance to, uh, to modify so basically, it sounds to me like there's no, like, for instance, there's the, this probably uh, prevents class action lawsuits, right? Because they've got to go through the AG's officers, even if there's, I guess the data breach might cover some of that. But if there's some other egregious thing that maybe doesn't fall under data breach, there is, there's no like class action. I don't know. Is that possible through the AG's office? Can the AG represent a class of individuals as opposed to like a single? Again, I don't want to get over my skis here as as not a mm-hmm. lawyer, um, which is like really a thing I should put on my business card. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I believe that the the AG could bring an action on behalf of of many people. I'm not 100% positive about that, but that is my understanding. But you know, it wouldn't be as good as a as a private right of action. Yeah. So another one of the quotes from the article, uh, one of the articles I read, what says uh, businesses have to point to where people can make those requests in their privacy policy or on their website, and this is another thing we've seen with a lot of companies: these dark patterns. These they make it 
you know, technically by the letter of the law, like with the free file program, yes, it's available if you can find it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so do they, in, you know, does the law in any way call this out? Like in, in ways that it has to be standard, like it has to be in something more than 0.0 font or, you know, it's, you know, it's gotta be, have the same name. So if I search on it from a website, I should find it. Is there any standardization around this? And I forget if, I think it might've been one of your articles or actually it was a CNET article that mentioned this. If there was some sort of a standardized name, like, like a robots.txt file, you know, things that, that, that they, yeah, the ITF or somebody could right, uh, put put together that says that I, so computers can actually find these things for people and bring them forward as opposed to people having to find them. Uh, how did they address that or did they? So, you know, they, I think, I don't have the law like directly in front of me, mm-hmm. but I think what it says is that you have to provide a, I think it's like clear and conspicuous or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it has to be noticeable. They do say it has to be, you know, something that you can see. It has to say something like, do not send my personal information, you know, kind of looking at what companies have put up. Some of them say like your California privacy rights or, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. They are not in a standardized place on the, on the website. I, you know, I found them sort of all over. I found mm-hmm. them in privacy policies. Um, but I will say that the uh, that is part of what the attorney general regulations are trying to address. So, um, for example, one of the things in the attorney general regulations is that, you know, they have a design for a button or it's actually a toggle, which is um, speaking personally and not for EFF, not my favorite design because mm-hmm. um, I think they can be a bit confusing. Mm-hmm. But um yeah. So, I mean, there are there are some things around that. We'll have to see sort of how they shake out in the in the regulations. But um, there are some there are some basic sort of of uh, standards around that. And again, you know, to have that in re- really specific in the law is not necessarily the best way to address yeah. it. So I do think that regulations are, you know, sort of I, I understand why that was the mechanism that they went with. Um, but yeah, dark patterns is certainly a, a, a concern. And I think, um, you know, even when I was going through and uh, like I did a request to um, Experian, which is a, you know, mm-hmm. a, a big data company. Yeah. And, you know, I said, okay, you know, delete my information. And this thing popped up and it was like, are you sure you want to delete? There may be negative consequences, mm-hmm. but, you know, they didn't say what those were. And I could definitely see, like, if I were not a person who had worked deeply with this law, that I would have been like, oh, well, I don't know. You know, right. do I want to delete that information? Um, right, yeah. So, yeah. You know, and it sounds paranoid, but it, it, these things happen and, and, and these companies are doing it. And that's, I guess that's the real art behind legislation and the reason lawyers, you know, uh, make the the money they do is crafting the legislation. So it's specific enough to cover the cases you need, but vague enough, uh, or, you know, to leave some, you know, at least some judicial wiggle room. So the judge can say, you know, the spirit of law versus the letter of the law kind of thing. And, Mm -hmm. um, like for example, like, you know, some of these dark patterns that you mentioned one of them, but another one would be like, you know, so you find the the policy and then they pop up the window and the window says, no, please don't make my experience on this website better. Or, you right. know, or please don't show, you know, please show me ads I don't care about, you know, you know and that's the button, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think they are, you know, they, they think they do have to say something along the lines of do not sell my personal information. Um, you know, I think that language is, is pretty standard, but yeah, I agree with you. Like there are a lot of ways that, I mean, dark patterns is sort of another area of, you know, of 
of privacy and kind of design, you know, that, that we have to think about. Um, certainly people have thought about that in legislation, you know, or industry standards or something like that, because I think, as you say, we see a lot of that in a lot of different circumstances. Yeah. So, okay. So I know it just really like just went into effect like less than two months ago. So I assume at this point, there's probably not, and maybe not, I don't know, have there been any suits brought on the against this already or i guess you said it's not really enforced until july 1st so that's probably that's probably where that would come in yeah so uh with the with the caveat that i'm not omniscient (laughs) (laughs) um you know i think yeah i haven't heard of any lawsuits i think it does certainly the california attorney general um you know because they are the ones uh enforcing the law they have said you know, they're collecting information on people who are, you know, who report by, or they collect, uh, they're collecting the reported violations from people or, you know, just ways that people think that businesses may not be complying with the law. But in terms of any like enforcement action, I wouldn't expect to see that until July. How about the reverse Have there? Have there been any companies, big tech, you know, big tech in particular that have already promised to fight, you know, bring suits against this or challenges in court? So I, again, uh, you know, I'm not omniscient, but I haven't, I also haven't heard of any legal challenges to the law as of yet. Um, I think a lot of people are sort of waiting to see what the final regulations look like, which is not to say that they aren't in a drawer somewhere, just like ready to be filed. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, industry certainly did fight very hard against this law. Um, you know, this is a little bit off of just CCPA, but, um, you know, as other states are considering privacy legislation, we certainly see companies make, uh, companies or trade associations make arguments that CCPA is not, you know, is not, I don't want to say is not legal, but, you know, that they, that they have, they have uh, concerns with it. So I would, I wouldn't rule it out, but I haven't seen it yet. Right. And that's actually a perfect segue because I wanted to start branching out beyond California um, because I know that California is massive and it's a huge economy and things that happen in California don't have effects outside of California. So how might this positively impact the rest of us who are not California residents? We will pick it up next week. And so, you know, we've talked about, we kind of went through the details of the of the California law, uh, but there are other laws going on in other states, uh, some that have already been implemented, and they have some really inter- interesting interactions. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that and how, even though it's a California law, it, it's going to impact uh, those of us in other states as well, uh, either by helping to drive federal law to finally come into place. Or because, you know, these companies operate in both California and all the other 49 states, uh, many of them are just going to take, you know, if they're going to have to do it for California anyway, they're going to do it for the rest of us as well. So in the second second half of the interview, we will pick up there and, uh, you know, I'll ask her the usual questions about what people should be doing and how they can get involved and how they get more informed. And uh, you're not going to miss part two. Because we're talking about the CCPA, I saw this article and I thought it was really funny uh, and, and actually interesting. Uh, it was in Fortune, uh, Fortune.com, and I'll just read the headline. It says, exclusive, for $3, a robot lawyer, and that's in quotes, will sue data brokers that don't delete your personal uh, and location information. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. If you just go to Fortune.com and, uh, and search on privacy or CC, CCPA, I'm sure you'll find this article right away. But basically, there's a new startup called Do Not Pay. And by the way, I've seen other startups uh, along this line. 
And, you know, if it's fair for these companies to automate the gathering of your information, it's also fair for other companies to come along and help you automate the <laughs> automate the process of going after them when they break laws or even automating the process of finding all of them and telling them to stop tracking your data. Um, so anyway, I'll let you, uh, maybe I'll talk more about this article next time, but if you want to look it up, it's fortune.com or go to my, uh, go to the show notes for this, for this episode. I'll have a link for it there as well. So again, next time we'll have this part two of our interview with Haley Sukiyama from the EFF about the California Consumer Privacy Act and its implications for folks outside of California. I'll sneak a news, a news show in after that. I'm sure there'll be plenty of things to talk about. And I've got several other interviews coming up that, uh, you're going to really enjoy. I, I don't want to jinx myself, but I've got a couple couple folks I've been trying to get on the show for a long time, and uh, they should be very interesting interviews. So if you haven't already, it'd be a great time to subscribe to the show. That you won't, way you won't miss part two of this one or any show coming up in the future. And while you're there, or even if you've already subscribed, I would really, really appreciate anybody who might swing by uh, Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a nice review on this podcast. Again, trying to reach more people and the more you know, the more reviews and the more stars on, on the podcast, the more likely it is to be noticed by other people. So I would very much appreciate that. I'm also uh, starting to uh, work on the fourth edition of the book. And again, I will say uh, if you've got the book and you've got some feedback, anything interesting you think I might want to include or might want to change, uh, I would love to hear your feedback. And you can send that feedback to feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about the book and kind of get some behind-the-scenes stuff as I go through and make these edits and uh, kind of follow the process as I uh, crank out the fourth edition of this book, you can go to patreon.com, P-I-T-R-E-O-N, and you know search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And if you uh, sign up at uh, the right level, you will get updates. In fact, I'm going to be sending one just, just this weekend to, to kick off the whole book writing thing. And, and if you sign up at the right level, you can even get a signed copy of the book. But also, you know, if you'd like to just kind of help me support my efforts in the blog and the newsletter and the book and the podcast and all these things, uh, I would very much appreciate that as well. And you can do that at patreon.com. For those of you that may have tuned into the my interview on WNCU, which was uh, obviously you'd have to be here in Raleigh area to actually have heard it last night on the FM radio. But uh, if you uh, caught my live link, the live listen link, you could have caught that anywhere on the planet. Uh, if you missed that, uh, you can tune into their podcast. I think it's on Wednesday. Uh, if you go to WNCU.org, you uh, could click on the podcasts link and uh, should be showing up there uh, probably Wednesday, I think. Uh, so, and you can find the interview there. It was kind of fun to be on the other side of the mic and have someone ask me questions for once. All right, let's wrap it up there. Thank you again for listening and tuning in. Uh, tune in next week for part two of our very interesting interview on the CCPA. And until then, everybody, as usual, Stay safe, safe, stay extra safe out there, especially with all the virus stuff going around. Uh, stay extra safe. Listen to your CDC folks and your scientists and stuff and listen to what they tell you to do. And and don't panic. Um, yes, it, you know, it's something we need to be concerned about. But this is, uh, you know, we're not at a panic phase yet. So follow the basic hygiene. Stay home if you're sick. Uh, all the, the kind of things that the, uh, the scientists and things are telling us to do. Just pay attention to those. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge. Now.